Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Ann Marrow. From Melvinia Hodges, fiber arts are a creative outlet, but so much more. She strives to honor, preserve, and practice a fiber arts heritage. Listening to her is an infusion of creative energy and a release from the worry and guilt that many of us put on our textile energy. So Melvinia, I know that you spin and weave and knit, but when I think about your work, the first thing I really think about is cotton. Can you tell me how you got started working with cotton? Well, I got started working with cotton a lot like I got started uh, spinning wool. It started with wanting to work with more uh, fibers that are natural and create beautiful yarn. And so I acquired some and then I started. Cotton happened a little differently than wool, though, because just like most people who start (laughs) spinning with wool, I struggled. (laughs) And what happens when you struggle? Well, sometimes you stop for a while. And with me, that's what happened. I put it away, forgot about it. But then one day I was visiting a weaving store. And outside of that weaving store, I spied a peculiar plant. And when upon closer look, I realized that that plant was a cotton plant. Now, I had never seen a cotton plant in person. And so I was extremely excited. I live in northern Indiana. This just doesn't happen. It's not supposed to be here. So I uh, went inside. And when I talked to the shop owner, she said, yeah, it's cotton. Um, I bought it at a festival and it's growing just fine. Here, take a bowl. And so that's how I acquired actually a natural uncombed, unprocessed cotton. And because I had received this gift, that inspired me to go back to it. (laughs) And so what I did, I I took this one precious bowl and it was brown cotton, which was another thing. I'd never seen brown cotton before. I didn't know it grew in all the different colors. I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought into it, but I I got a spindle and I, I spun it very slowly and very finely and was successful. And this was a shock because when I tried cotton spinning before, I was using a sliver and it was a comb sliver. So it was very smooth, very difficult for me to draft. Um, But I realized that the method, the way I was spinning was causing the trouble. But then also it helps to have some crimp in it, some of the natural crimp to help you spin. And so from there, I was so intrigued. I was like, well, I have cracked the code because I think. A lot of us want to spin cotton, but we don't know how to spin cotton. It makes so much sense for our life. I mean, the things that we wear and love are made from cotton. However, in order to spin it, you really do have to do something different than what you would do spinning wool. And so that kind of set me on a journey, a rediscovery journey. And when I say rediscovery journey, I had to totally revisit why I want to know more. 
and why I want to get more cotton and why I want to spend more cotton. And so from there, I sought to find cotton that was handpicked with the seeds because knowing now that I can grow it where I live, I wanted to be able to do that. And then I also knew that, okay, I'm not successful at spinning sliver, but if it's handpicked and still has its crimp, it's going to spin just like cashmere and be so luxurious and fun and all of those wonderful things that you get from spinning cotton. So that one year uh, from that one bowl, I was able to get 21 seeds. And so the following year, those seeds would be planted in my backyard. I live on a city lot, by the way, so no experience growing things. I literally have a little square that I dug up in my backyard and I put those seeds out. And what do you know, that first year I actually got a crop of cotton. And I was able to spin it. I carded it and then spun it. It wasn't enough, obviously. (laughs) It wasn't a very large crop. But it was enough to give me that power, that sense of power in that I can want something and take raw material and create um, that power to grow something and use it. And so that's kind of been the driving force. As a Black American, I have always had kind of a complicated relationship. And I don't even know if I would call it a relationship because uh, living in northern Indiana, it's not like you're not going to see it growing anywhere. You're only going to hear from your elders and people who were from a time period where maybe, you know, they still had family or most people from my grandparents' generation lived in the South. They worked on farms. In some cases, they did pick cotton. And so they have a relationship that's more so, you know, it's drudgery, it's work, it's, you know, something that's necessary to do to survive, that kind of thing. Um, And not necessarily that connection that you would have, that powerful connection where it goes, okay, I've got this raw material that I can create something that I love and cherish with. So I kind of had to reach back. But in a different way, I had to reach back, not because reach back with a sense of power, you know, that this fiber means more so than sustenance. It's actually something that I can create my own personal cultural artifacts with. But from there, it it was just me finding as many sources as I could to get this cotton um, and really, I, I only found one. Really, there was a, there's a farmer in North Carolina that will sell small quantities of handpicked. And so I bought some of that and I ginned it. Even that process, you know, people talk about, oh, ginning is so tedious and so hard. But when you're, you just got a pound and you're creating for yourself, you don't even realize you're spending eight hours to <laughs> gin seeds from one pound of cotton. You're just enjoying it because you're doing it for you. It's power. It's I am going to create for me. So it's it's a very enriching experience. I love that combination of what you're saying about power and perseverance and having that turn into joy. Yes. Because it's not just that you can, you also like it. Yeah. And I didn't know I would get that. You know, I, I enjoy spinning wool. I had spun wool probably for a good six, seven years before. I even attempted to spin cotton. And so I enjoyed that, but spinning cotton is different. 
it's a whole different thing. Like when I spin wool, I can have my e-reader up. I can read a story. I can watch TV. I'll hold a conversation. When I spin cotton, I forget everything, especially if I'm spinning it on a spindle. If I'm sitting on the floor with my back against the wall and I'm spinning cotton, I can forget to drink whatever tea, whatever. It, it just has this way of unraveling whatever's in your mind. There's something different about it. And I think we experience that so rarely in this time where there's so many unnatural distractions happening. I live in a city or an urban environment, so there's always sounds and noise and movement. Um, and then not only that, you know, we have our um, devices that distract us. They're pinging and dinging and all that. But cotton will shut all of that off. <laughs> if you sit down and put your back against the wall and, and get going, you're, you're literally watching that twist. Because that, that's one difference between spinning wool and spinning cotton. When you spin cotton... You're allowing that twist to go into the fiber and at just the right moment, you're pulling back. That's different than spinning wool. And so there's a certain amount of concentration that's happening there. And it really will refocus you and take transport you <laughs> to that place. I, I haven't found anything else that can do that. And that keeps you focused that way. A lot of us find knitting and spinning to be meditative until you get to a point where you can watch TV and stuff like that. But it sounds like cotton has really held your focus in more ways than one. Yes, yes. Now I can, um, like if I'm spinning larger quantities, I do spin on a wheel. And that in itself is a different experience. When you spin on a spindle, you're, you fuss over every little inch of that fiber. So there's a lot more care and focus. When I spin on a wheel, I'm more likely to think about what I'm going to do next. But uh, spindle spinning cotton is, is a different, a whole different story. I, I would highly recommend <laughs> anybody who's looking to wind their day down. If your life's whirlwind is whirling too fast, get yourself a spindle <laughs> and get going on it. So do you still only spin hand-picked cotton or have you started experimenting with combed cotton as well now that you're more comfortable with the fiber? Well, I have started spinning with certain combed fiber. So preparation does matter. And there is one company that produces a sliver just for hand spinners. And this sliver is, it's a comb prep, but it still leaves some of the texture in the fiber and it spins like butter. So I do use that and I'm able to get several different colors. I can get green and I can get natural brown. Uh, there's a darker brown color, has more of a brownish red. So yes, there is some out there now where it's wonderful to spin. The stuff that is created for commercial meals is, you can tell, you'll know it when you see it because it's really flat, really smooth. And that's not as fun. It's spinnable, obviously, but it's not as luxurious as cotton that still has a little crimp in it. The same way, I guess that very processed combed wool top is is not as fun as something freshly combed. But I guess, you know, I still keep trying to make that connection between wool versus cotton, but cotton is really its own thing. And that was a stupid thing to say. Actually, no, because the thing is, cotton is thought of as wool. In fact, they even used to call it like the woolly plant. It Natural cotton is woolly. 
Natural cotton is ultra soft and woolly. It's lofty. It is the opposite of how we're used to describing it when it's in its natural state. And the way that we will have uh, traditionally processed cotton is with carters. And when you card a fiber, you're brushing it up and you're creating loft. And so it is woolly. It is woolly, but it's like the softest wool. It's softer than wool. And I have heard the advice that if you have some cashmere and you, you're afraid to spin something so expensive, that a lot of the skills that you use to make good yarn out of cashmere are also the skills that you use to make good cotton yarn. Yeah, that was the immediate connection I made when I got that first bowl of brown cotton and spun it. It was like, wait, this is just like cashmere. You know, you let the twist inch into the fiber, then pull back at just the right moment. That's it. Got it. Bingo. And from there, no more trouble. You know, I could spin yard after yard after ounce after pound uh, without any trouble. And the thing is, I'm discovering as I research more and look more into not the industrial history of cotton spinning, but the colonial or the more, you know, cottage craft of spinning cotton. That's kind of how it worked. You know, you would hand gin, hand pick, hand gin the seeds out of the cotton. You'd card it on your carters, create little rolags, and you would spin it. They would spin it on a grape wheel. But yeah, and you would just spin yard after yard, pound after pound. And they would make whole coverlets this way. The ground weave would be hand spun cotton singles. So there was like a whole whole world, a whole culture, a whole tradition of hand spinning cotton before the industrial narrative that we all have grown to know came about, you know, pre, pre, you know, civil war, we weren't importing all of the thread, we were hand spinning. And so we would create things not because it was profitable, and we could sell it for a whole lot of money, but because we could do it. We had the power to create with our natural resources, but then also we wanted to make something that was beautiful and that we loved and things just had so much more meaning. You know, the minute you put a price tag on something, I think it depreciates, especially something that was handmade. I mean, you can't really put a dollar sign on life energy. Life energy is a non-renewable resource. I think we forget that with industrialization, our life energy is a non-renewable resource. It is priceless. So if somebody spends hours, weeks, months spinning the yarn to weave into a cloth for you, that is love. That is priceless. Now, you mentioned that the first cotton bowl that somebody gave you was brown cotton. One of the things that industry does is to, it tends to standardize to you know white cotton, but you've mentioned that you've gotten cottons from of all different colors. Have you tried growing different colors of cotton? I have. I grow every seed I can get my hands on. And because I'm not a real gardener, you know, I plant all of my seeds in the same area and they cross pollinate and things happen. But so far I've grown green and I've grown, uh, of course, the brown and I've grown white. And then all the betweens that happen when you allow cotton to grow together and cross pollinate. And I don't even realize it sometimes. It looks like, oh, this is white. 
But then when I, sometimes I'll simmer it in baking soda to kind of intensify the color and realize, oh, wait, there's a tinge of green happening here. or This looks more olivey. So I've been getting new colors there. I do know that there are so many more shades and variations of cotton colors out there, but we don't really have access to those because of industrialization. A lot of those seeds I probably locked away or, you know, forbidden somewhere or lost. Um, I do know there's in South America, they're trying to revive the cultivation of all the different variety of colors that exist. And cotton, but um, it's just hard to come by. So whenever I can get my hands on some, I will uh, try it. And I share too. I I try to get more people because I'm I'm in the North. Yeah, I'm in the North. So it's not easy for me to grow large quantities. Yeah, I was going to say that I do know that there are some some people who will, you know, say, oh, I have some of this and I'll get a seed from you and I'll get a seed from you. So there's these little informal exchanges around the country. I have a a friend that used to be referred to as Johnny Cottonseed because she'd kept giving cotton seeds to everybody she could think of. I love it. <laughs> and the joy of what I mean, what a beautiful plant too. I mean, that was the other thing, you know, it was cool to get the fiber, but even to watch this plant grow, I mean, the le- the hibiscus-like leaves and the beautiful flowers that start off white, then they turn pink and the gnarly little I don't know what to call them, the husks that grows around the bowl. It's a beautiful plant to watch grow. It really is. Now, you mentioned traditional methods. Your website is called Traditions in Cloth. Was that from before you fell in love with cotton? Or is that something that you came to since you've become a cotton spinner? No, well, Traditions in Cloth came about beforehand. And really, it's about me honoring and preserving our fiber hearts heritage through practice. It's about creating our own cultural artifacts and defining ourselves and our values and all that we love and what we create. I have been working with textiles for some time. Um, it's a long drawn out journey that I probably won't <laughs> get to here. But uh, for me, it's about identity and self-discovery. And I just feel like we need to honor that and not forget it because There was once upon a time, maybe we did create because we had to. We didn't have a lot of options. But I think now it's even more a luxury because we don't have to. But it's important that we do it uh, because we have the power to create. And we've been gifted that. It's inherent in us. And it is a strong part of who we are as humans. Um, And so it's about honoring and preserving that. Even though we don't have to, we still can. And we can reap all those benefits from it. And you are also a teacher, right? Do you teach other things in addition to fiber arts or is spinning and weaving where you do most of your teaching? Well, I teach primary school, so I teach literacy. (laughs) And, And honestly, I will say I could not be doing this right now without that foundation because I grew up in an environment where fiber arts was not being practiced. I mean, I guess maybe a certain kind of fiber art, hair braiding was practiced as an art form and even as a profession uh, where I grew up. However, you know, in terms of fiber arts where somebody would create their own household textiles or create their own clothing to wear, 
that I didn't grow up around that. And not only that, the tools for creating those things were not to be found. But because of the era of internet, I was able to get literature and get tools. And if I had not had that foundation of critical thinking and being able to read information, you know, acquire knowledge, but then take that knowledge and put it to practice, I would not be able to do this. You know, so in my wildest dreams, one day I could create my clothing, but without that foundation, I wouldn't be able to do it. So yeah, I I teach primary school. And I feel like some of the most important things that you could ever learn in life. Well, one of the things that you learn in life is how to do things that are difficult and how to get used to not knowing how to do something. And for adults who are learning fiber arts, I think that's one of the hardest things. I've seen adults burst into tears in a spinning class because they couldn't get it. I'm so glad you brought that up, Anne, because uh, one of the things that I like to tell people before we even embark on that journey is as adults, we're really good at acquiring tools. We love to you know, shop and we will collect all the things that are needed. We're also good at collecting knowledge. We will, you know, we'll read the books, we'll watch the videos, we'll talk to a friend, we'll watch. However, the one thing you can't do really fast and really easily is acquire skill because skill takes time. There is no other way to acquire skill. You really do have to, you know, once you have the knowledge, once you have the tools, you really have to apply yourself and gain muscle memory and you have to take the time. You've got to humble yourself and struggle. You can't have fun with this new skill that you're going to acquire without going through the struggle. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have to, I, I have to remind people that, yeah, there's no other way. If I could just bottle it up and hand it to you, I would be a rich woman, <laughs> but I can't. No one can give you that. Only you can. Now, you spent a good chunk of time as a student this summer, right? You did a fellowship in Scandinavian weaving. Is that right? I did. And what a gift. I had no idea what was in store. Prior to this experience at Vastuga Weaving School in uh, Shelburne, Massachusetts, I had never been to a uh, you know, workshop where I would you know, stay away from home. I, most of my life has happened in the Midwest. Uh, I just haven't had the luxury. I, I haven't had the funds and I haven't had the time to leave the daily hustle <laughs> to do it. But thanks to the pandemic, it sat, us, sat me down long enough to realize I had a little more power over that <laughs> than I realized. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I said, you're not going to be afraid. You're going to dive in. And boy, am I glad I did. What an experience. <laughs> And the most important thing that I got from that experience was seeing textiles, handwoven textiles used in everyday context. I didn't grow up with that. I, I am a product of the 90s. Tablecloths are plastic things that you put on the table for a birthday party. <laughs> Napkins come in a package and they are disposable. <laughs> So, you know, towels are, you know, bought from the store and, you know, you use them until they're too ugly to use and you throw them out and buy another pack. So 
it was a whole, and this is after I was a weaver. So after knowing how to weave, this, this was totally new. Seeing that and then also the color and the character in the farmhouse because of all the textiles and realizing what makes a place cozy and homey is the textiles and how much they matter. That, that has been priceless. Priceless. It sounds like such a wonderful experience. Now, you said that, you know, most of your family is originally from the South and you are living in Indiana, but you went to New England to learn in a mostly Scandinavian tradition, right? Is, is Fevstuga, is it Swedish or Norwegian or just generally Scandinavian in focus? Scandinavian. So it's a mix, mostly Swedish, but Scandinavian. And what made you interested in that kind of textile tradition? I suppose a lot of it, you know, these household textiles are cotton, but they tend to be so much more brightly colored than the, the natural hues. Well, that's exactly why I was so intrigued. So, you know, as you, for, for someone like me who is not from a background where people wove or hand spun, you're kind of free to dibble and dabble in everything. You don't have a set tradition. You don't have a set thing or or way that you have to work. And so for me, it was about when I saw examples of this kind of weaving, I naturally responded to it. There is something in my eye that loves high contrast and pattern and jewel tones. There's something in my eye that is attracted. So when I saw uh, some of the pieces that were on the Vastuga website, I knew it was for me. <laughs> And um, so it was just a natural fit. So you had a, a really sort of an immersive experience, right? I think a lot of people dream about what it would be like to go away and learn about fiber arts for several weeks. Was it everything we might dream of? Yes, <laughs> especially for me. And I didn't realize I, I grew up in the township and I am just recently as an adult moving into the city limits. I thought I had been exposed <laughs> to nature, <laughs> but apparently I hadn't. <laughs> Once I got there, the landscape was so beautiful and so foreign. I mean, the bugs, but then also the botanicals and things that come with that. You know, it was, it was an enchanted place. It was a beautiful it was something else. In fact, I will tell you, um, I, I stayed in the little cabin on the hill at Vavstuga. And I remember for the first couple of days waking up to water and it would just bring me to tears because, you know, you have the sounds that you're used to hearing. I'm used to birds. I'm used to an insect buzzing by here and there in the summer. But running water was new and it just, it just affected me so deeply. It was, it was a beautiful thing. I have to say, I, I grew up in the country, but if I woke up to running water, my first thought would be that a pipe burst. I would be terrified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they, they actually have streams. <laughs> and the, oh, the, the water is so delicious there, too. I mean, it's, everything is just so fresh and so natural. It was, it was a new experience, and it was, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Even walking around at night, like oftentimes I would be weaving in the barn into the wee hours 
And, you know, I'd be walking back to the cabin. It's about a 10, 15 minute walk in the middle of the night and just how still and how peaceful it was. Even that was new. It, it was it was very special. And I think I read that you came home with some extra looms. Is that right? I shouldn't say extra looms. You came home with some new to you looms. <laughs> well, I didn't get any new looms while in Massachusetts. However, I was justified in my desire for <laughs> other looms because I'm one of those people that when I love something, I like to have variations of that thing. And so, you know, going to Bastuga, there is a loom at every corner. There is a barn full of looms. You walk into the house, there's a room with looms here. There are looms upstairs. And then you've got the head instructor, Becky, going, yes, I like a different loom for every project. And I went, oh, oh. <laughs> and so, so some looms have joined me <laughs> since. And I realized that I have one loom with a project on it. It would be nice to also be able to share that with other people. And so my goal is this summer that I will actually not only have my projects working, but also have a loom in which when people go, oh, well, show me what you do, I can actually let them sit down and experience it too. So I can share. I've, I'm going to share my looms, but I do have three looms that I did not start the year with. I love it. <laughs> we can call them rescues. So is your cotton spindle feeling lonely at all? No, uh, because they actually, the thing is, I work on a lot of different crafts. You know, I sew, I print, I embroider, I weave, um, but they don't happen all at once. They usually happen in seasons and they happen based upon my natural inspiration or instinct. As far as spinning goes, spinning is something that I do year round and there are set times for it. So in the morning, every morning I spin. It's completely separate from weaving. I spin if I'm you know, spending for a project, but I also spend when I have nothing else going on. I just spend just because. So it doesn't, it doesn't really overlap. I'm always spinning. In fact, right now I am on a very special project in spinning. What's that? I am spinning for my first hands-on coverlet. Wow. Yeah. And really the amount of yarn that I'm spinning is not, it's not unusual because again, I'm spinning all the time. But to spin so much yarn for one project is new, but it doesn't feel any different. I've already got all the wool spun for the pattern with. It's going to be an overshot coverlet. So I've got about two pounds spun for the pattern. And then I'm going to hand spin the cotton singles for the warp. But it's gone fast. It's only been 22 days. <laughs> I thought it would take me longer. <laughs> you know, a couple hours in the morning, but it's getting done. <laughs> it's happening. And I'm getting a lot of thinking and, and planning done, too, as I go. I've heard of somebody refer to that as being like your daily practice, or she was talking about her studio practice and the way it really becomes part of your, your life and your creative journey to do something every day. I would definitely agree with that. Um, I often tell people it's a meditation. Not that I'm probably that kind of person, because I'm usually someone who's kind of all over the place. The whirlwind of life tends to spin me around with it. However, having that grounding helps, <laughs> helps me organize the disorganized mind. So I do need that, especially when things are challenging. You know, I think about rough patches in my life 
that I've passed through. And, and sometimes they pass fast and sometimes they pass slowly. But having spinning, you know, when you're when you are too tired to do anything else, when you can't you have thought too many thoughts already and you can't think anymore. Spinning is something that you can do and it actually helps. It actually restores you instead of depletes. That's true. Well, and I love the way you talk about doing things in different seasons. I sometimes feel like I'm neglecting one of my hobbies or crafts if I don't follow it, but then that makes me feel guilty as opposed to powerful. It really is season. I think it's always been that because once we take away the element of I am creating for some kind of purpose and just accept that creating is a natural part of being and that it is inherent in us, then you can get away from that because it doesn't always have to be about a goal. And so once you throw that away, you do it because you feel like it. You're going to feel like adding a little paint to one of your tools. You're going to feel like adding a little embroidery to a project that you're sewing. You're going to do it according to the heart. And so with that, you don't have to worry about some kind of schedule or production or heaven forbid, if you got to sell something, (laughs) you know, you're just doing it because you love to. And because you need to. I was going to say, speaking of having to sell something, you have been in several craft shows, right? Do you want to keep doing that? Yeah, I am. And the reason why I'm going to keep doing it, because I create a lot. and. Because I create things because I love to and because it, I feel, enhances my well-being, there's a lot of stuff. (laughs) And so it is important for me to share, not only share like the tools that I sell and the supplies that I sell in order to help other people experience what I'm experiencing, but then also if I get into a mode and make 22 scarves that are you know, hand spun, hand woven. Yeah, I'm going to keep some. However, come on, I I need to share some of those. (laughs) They can pile up and they have. I have quite the collection. I can wear a new one every day if I needed to. (laughs) So no, a lot of, if you see something on my website to sell, it's because I loved it and enjoyed it, but I have a surplus and I want to share with you. One of the things I've noticed that you have on your site, and we've actually feature them in several of our magazines. It's not something I think of as a fiber art. You make these amazing hand-painted earrings, but they often have fiber arts themes. How did you get started doing that? It just happened. So I one day got a package of shapes from the craft store. And of course, I like natural things. So it was nothing for me to wear wooden earrings, just plain. But then I thought, Once I start loving something, then I want to embellish it. And then I start to paint and then I paint whatever is in my mood. So a lot of times it it will be, obviously I'm a, I love fiber arts. So so I'm going to, I'm going to paint fiber arts things, but then I also love botanicals and plants and insects. And so you'll see that in a lot of the stuff on my site too. And it's really just me getting into a mode. I have a pack of shapes. And I feel like painting. And so then they build up and then I offer them. How long have you been into fiber arts? You know, fiber arts as we know it, I was probably 15 or 16 years old. However, my grandmother was an accomplished seamstress and that was kind of 
what she was known for and celebrated for. And so knowing of that, she was long past her sewing by the time I came of age. But knowing that that was there kind of offered some inspiration. But then also, I talked about earlier how hair braiding was not just something that people practice just for adornment, but it really was practiced as an art form. And it was something that every girl child that I know of aspired to. And so me and my sister would sit and braid each other's hair for hours. And when I say braiding as an art form, I'm talking about literally hair sculptures. That's what people did. Like if you were going to make it to the top of the craft and be the go-to person, it's an art form. And, you know, people would sit and have their hair braided for, it would take 21 hours sometimes. You'd be sitting on a couch cushion and someone would be working on your hair for that long. And so it really was an introduction to that and realizing that, yeah, I do have what it takes to persevere. And I actually enjoyed it. That kept me going. And then also there was kind of off-loom braiding too, where people would make the lanyards. And so we would do that. And I got really, really good at that. Um, I could do different designs and mines were always meticulously done. So I knew I liked to work with my hands and I knew I liked working with fibers. I did also watch my grandmother attempt to teach my older sister how to crochet. At the time, I was too young, too noodly, I guess, <laughs> to teach, but it sealed the deal. Like, oh, you can get yarn and you can, you just need this little hooky thing and you can make a fabric. And then I went, oh, well, when it was time for me to try to start that journey of sewing, because I, I wanted to ultimately make clothing for myself. That's where I started because that was the first fabric I saw made. In my hometown, we just had one small fabric store and it was quilting. So it was quilting fabric. So it wasn't fashion fabric. It wasn't about making things to wear. And so that kind of drove me to wanting to create my own fabric and got me on that path. And it's pretty much stayed that way. So even, you know, progressing into hand spinning, I had never seen a spinning wheel until I was a college student. But not having the kind of yarn, <laughs> and not, not being able to create the kind of fabric with the kind of yarn I had access to was like a driving force. And it always was. Um, and so that and then having the Internet make it possible to get natural fibers and tools really helped push me along in the journey. But it was always all about creating that dream fabric to make clothing. And I didn't mean to diminish the hair braiding at all. I realized as we've been speaking that I've been thinking about that. Well, that's different because that's adornment. But there are people for whom their primary craft is art to wear and, you know, sewing their clothing. So I guess I'm just noticing a little quirk that I have where I figure those things are different. But working in hair braiding, you probably understand twist instinctively a lot better than many people who are just starting to think about spinning. Yes. And, and there really is an art to it. It's, it's not just taking two strands and twining them together. There is a certain flick of the wrist. It really is a special skill. But you know, I didn't even think of it that way. I didn't think of it that way. But there is a certain dexterity. And people will say like, Melvinio, the way you work your fingers. But that is 
skill that naturally develops over time. And you don't even think about it, <laughs> but it, it was, I didn't know I was learning skills that would help me spin yarn to create fabric, but I was, <laughs> it is very similar. In fact, the type of hair I have is very similar <laughs> to the kind of fiber that I work with to spin, um, which even that uh, was an, a discovery. You know, a lot of times when we try to explain to people certain things about twists, like why singles want to twist back on themselves or why sometimes you have so much twist that the yarn wants to over twist. The analogy we use is people, you know, we have them twist up their hair. So it makes total sense. Yep. It's very similar. The process, I mean, if you, to start a hairstyle, it happens, you know, it's just the same way. You wash your hair, you, we call it brushing, but you card it. You know, you have to fluff it up, get the texture right. The sectioning or all of it is very, very similar. It's very similar in the process. You know, somebody that I spoke with who was a guest on season three, Amy D. McKnight, is a weaver. And she did a lot of work on small looms and was just completely immersed in it. And then for a while, she didn't post anything. And she came back and said, I didn't know how to post about this, but I really have sort of lost my weaving, I'm going to say mojo, but her her weaving passion. And right now, what she's really into is hairstyling, micro locks and things like that. So that's sort of where her new passion is. So instead of sampling from a bunch of different crafts, she found herself completely turned to this new, to this new interest. And so I thought I was sort of proud of her for, you know, falling in love with a new craft. Yeah, they are, they are that similar. You know, as much as it makes me sad that she's not weaving. Well, she's she's not stopped weaving. Here's the thing. Again, our fiber arts needs go it comes in seasons. So, yeah, she is not weaving that right now. She is weaving something else at the moment. But it's it's still there. It doesn't go away. And that was the thing about, you know, braiding hair. It's been a long time time since I've done that. However, that same skill, that same process is happening. It's just not happening in that way. And yeah, it's not gone. And I always tell people, never get rid of your tools. Oh, it's been two years since I've used this. No, 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 no. So that season has passed. That season will come back. (laughs) And a lot of it does happen where people will get rid of their spinning wheel and then they're like, oh, I really want to spin. So, yeah, just just know that it happens in seasons. I think for some people, if you let it go easily, it can come back easily as opposed to hanging on and then being dragged back to it. But there's a certain joyfulness in what you're saying about just moving on as your interests are. Oh, yeah, I need to learn that. then. (laughs) Yeah, I, I have a hard time, especially any fiber arts, anything. It's hard to let it go. So you mentioned you're in the middle of spinning for a coverlet. What other sorts of projects do you have in mind? Do you have a cotton crop that you're going to plant this year? Oh, I I plant every year. Some years are more successful than others. Uh, This year, I'm excited because I have a new color of cotton that I get to try. It's a rusty red, kind of a brownish rusty color. Um, But I get to try that for the first time. So I'm always looking forward to it. So I haven't made anything with the last two years of cotton crops that I've grown because I am now working on something that I'm going to use with singles, cotton hand spun singles. 
And so I'm looking to make a larger cloth, but with just what I've grown, because I do have cotton that I've purchased, but the cotton that I grow is sacred to me. It's again, it's about my personal power. It's about me living on my own little postage stamp of property and growing my teeny tiny crop and spending my time and, and really processing it from beginning to end. And so I want to make something precious, but I also want to make something larger. Most of my projects have been really small, but I am collecting for something large. I don't know what, but I am collecting and spinning for something large, whatever that's going to be. <laughs> right now I have, uh, I'm motioning with my hands, you can't see this, but I have a large gallon size tub of hand spun singles from the cotton that I've grown. And I'm going to do something very special with it. Just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> you don't always have to know. No. Just spin the yarn. It'll come. Well, you said small, but we're not talking things like, you know, amulet bags. You, your chameleon shawl is on the spinoff website, and that is a full-sized knitted shawl. Yes. Yes, it is. However, I'm, I haven't done a hand-spun singles out of my own, like a, a fine cloth. I'm going to do a finer cloth out of my own. That was knitted. This is going to be singles hand woven into a larger cloth. So it'll be new. It'll be something special because the more I look into uh, historical cloth and historical textiles from all over the world, some of the most precious things are done that way where you got hand spun cotton singles that are woven into this light airy cloth. And so I, I aspire to that, to say that I started from a seed and I created this fine cloth because that's the ultimate. That's when I first dreamed the dream that I would make clothing, that was the cloth that was in my head. And so I, I am aspiring to that cloth. And I think I finally have the skills. Like, I think I'm there technically to do it. So what kinds of places that you mentioned that you're looking at historic cloth, but what sorts of places and times are you looking at for inspiration? And what, what are you interested in researching more about? Well, right now, of course, Scandinavian weaving is there high on my list, but then also um, South America, the textiles from South America that are woven on the back strap looms, uh, some of the older pieces that were done in the uh, natural color cotton and the singles, um, and then that style loom. So um, it's also uh, common to weave a broadcloth um, in Western Africa on these frame style loom. So that style, using cotton singles on a frame style loom to weave a broadcloth, that, that is kind of got my attention and got me experimenting. Yeah, those are the two areas. So like West Africa, South America, and then of course, Scandinavian weaving, because I just love what they do with the patterning. <laughs> I was curious partly because I've been reading about the Dhaka muslins, which were in India, and they were said to be so fine that a girl was wearing them and her father said, go put some clothes on, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that would be a dream. <laughs> Unfortunately, the colonial impact in India destroyed that textile tradition. So it really is amazing how, how these influences can both be nurtured and crushed. 
Yes. Well, a lot. And, and that's I'm very careful uh, with my cotton spinning. We cannot if, if we allow ourselves to try to put a price on everything, putting a price on our time that we spend on our craft, putting a price on you know what it is that we make. That's when we go down that slippery slope and we lose it. Because if you're thinking about, oh, it has to be, you know, make sense financially or, oh, you know, I can't spend you know, 60 hours (laughs) spinning yarn because, oh, what I could, how much money could I make in 60 hours doing something else? Then then we're not going to get to that level of artistry. Like we have to go back to the basics. Like I have the power to create and I'm going to create because I feel good when I do it and I'm creating things that I love. And I think that's how those traditions and that skill level developed. And we just, we cannot allow ourselves to get, put a price because that ruins it. (laughs) That ruins it. A living, but not a price. Yes. Well, me and my friend, one of my teacher friends, we started crafting together after school. And one of the things that we would say to each other is, you know, we give so much in our everyday life and our jobs and our obligations that we need to save some for ourselves. Save some of that energy for ourselves. Save that creativity for ourselves. And that's what we need to do in order to create those beautiful textiles. We need to save some for us. So even if you're going to produce some things to sell, which is a great thing, it's a beautiful thing. We, we should share. That's, you know, the fruits of our loom, share. But save some for me. And when you're saving some for me, that's when you start weaving that cloth, that thread so fine that you're going to weave a cloth that is so sheer that, it looks like you're not wearing anything. You're not going to make that to sell anywhere. That's part of your save some for me routine. Because we should have those precious things in our collection. We deserve them. What I love about what you're saying about I'm going to save some for me is that you are so energized when you talk about this, that you're actually sharing that with your students and with with people who read your articles. And thank you for sharing it with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's so it's okay to to do some for yourself, and so that's that's what my uh, morning spins are like. You know, I I spun this uh, the singles for my coverlet that I'm working on very fine, and I'm actually plying it, which is not typical. But because I'm doing this for me, it's okay. I can spend twice the time spinning <laughs> spinning the singles and spin them as fine as my heart's desire. Because I really I'm doing it just for my enjoyment. So, Melvinia, I have so enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Me too. It went so fast. (laughs) We must do this again. (laughs) I'd love to. Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.